I invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, as we make our way through the Psalter, uh, you maybe will notice that we are skipping over Psalm 70. That's because Psalm 70 uh, is uh, verbatim uh, from Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17. We've covered that already, and so we're going to be moving forward. Uh, it's Psalm 71. Derek Kidner calls this a psalm for uh, old age, uh, but I think we're going to find that the wisdom it contains is relevant uh, to all of us wherever we are in uh, our stage in life. Uh, because this psalm presents us a, a wonderful, unique, God-centered way of looking at our life. Let's give our attention to Psalm 71. Uh, we're going to read the entire psalm. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been a portent to many, but you have been my strong ref you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all, to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's ask for the Lord to bless. God, now as we come to this uh, inspired poem, we pray, Lord, that you would speak its truth through our heart, that you would teach us, Lord, how to see ourselves uh, correctly as under your care and in your hand. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom from this psalm. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you uh, read my uh, pastor's post this week, you know I've been doing a little uh, reading. Um, one of the novels I mentioned in that post is the novel by Mark Sullivan called The Last Green Valley. It's based on a true story 
of a couple, uh, Emil and uh, Adeline uh, Martel, and their harrowing, harrowing flight from first um, Stalin's attempt to uh, kill them uh, through the, the starvation of Hungarians in the 30s, and then Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime, and then um, after they had survived World War II, then uh, Emil was uh, imprisoned for nearly two years in a Soviet imprisonment, um, a prison camp, work labor camp. Um, most of the men, about 90% of the men in that camp died, but he was able to escape and made his way to West Berlin. She, with the, with the two boys, was trapped in East Germany and barely escaped with, uh, with her life. Uh, but they were, she was able to escape. The family was reunited. And um, after a few years, they made their way to America. Uh, it, it's really an incredible story of loss and survival and suffering. Uh, but one of the reasons the book was so compelling to me is that it is a, it's a story about faith. The underlying question of the, of, of the book was, uh, what is your life? Is life something that happens to you? Or is life something that happens by you, by your power? Or is life something that happens for you? Is it to or by or for? And that preposition makes all the difference. Because if you look at life as something that just happens to you, you're going to easily be bitter or anxious. You're going to see yourself as a victim. You'll be discouraged. Everything seems to be against you, right, when you come to hard times. Uh, and even in the good times, you'll be anxious because you know that good times can quickly uh, disappear and bad times return. I think many of us uh, experience life as something that happens to us. This happened, and then that happened, and that happened, and we hope this uh, doesn't happen. But life just sort of comes at us. Others maybe think of life as something that happens by you, by your power. Uh, and if you believe that, then you'll be a driven person. You'll be someone who uh, is confident that you can make life work if you just work hard enough, if you push the right buttons, if you um, do the right things. And so you'll be a driven person. Uh, you'll be a very self-reliant, particularly in your youth. But at some point... Um, as the dreams die and the brokenness of this world and the limits of your powers become increasingly clear, you'll be forced to admit that life is beyond your ability to control. Uh, you will be forced uh, through sin or sickness or tragedies, economic downturns, to acknowledge that your attempts to make it work are futile. Many people at this point despair. They tried to make life work they failed. They failed at life. They failed um, to make it do what they thought uh, they should be able to make it do. But what if both of those ways of looking at the world and looking at your life were just completely wrong? What if life isn't something that happens to you, and it certainly isn't something that happens by you, but what if it happens for you? What if your life was truly a gift, a precious gift, something that had been divinely ordained for you? Something that had been crafted for you. So that, so that your perspective of life would be that it's not an accident waiting to happen, and it's not a challenge to overcome, but it's a gift, truly a gift to be received. Uh, something to be thankful for. Something to, to give praise for. 
Because that's what we see in Psalm 71. Here's an, an elderly an, or an aging man. He doesn't seem to be in his full old age yet, but he can see it from where he stands. And, uh, and he knows what life is about. We're not told for certain who wrote Psalm 71. There's many things in the psalm that sound like David. I think that would be the best guess, but we're not told that specifically. But either way, in the psalm, there, the themes that we find here are familiar and helpful to anyone who's living in this, in this broken, fallen, suffering world. Uh, there are six paragraphs in the psalm. Uh, there's not an easily defined progression. So what I'd like to do is just um, look at the themes in a more broad sense. So we'll look at the problems the man faces, then the perspective that he uses to, uh, to face those things, and then we'll find that he, it turns out in praise. So it'll be problems and perspective and praise. The problems. Uh, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And uh, this man has experienced troubles in his life. He mentioned some of them. Wicked men, for instance, verse 4. Uh, Rescue me, O God, from the hand of wicked men, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Uh, David, as you know, was uh, a man constantly being opposed, threatened by wicked men. Uh, notice the writer here highlights two specific aspects of wicked men. They are unjust and cruel. One of the things that struck me as I was just reading this historical novel was the incredible injustice and cruelty of both Stalin's Soviet regime and then uh, Hitler's uh, Nazi regime, where, where men were completely ruthless, could not care, um, delighted in evil in the most profound ways. Well, this man has experienced those sorts of people. Unjust and cruel men. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that, that this is going to be increasingly common, that men will be faithless and heartless and ruthless. Uh, that that's what, that's what happen when, happens when evil increases in the world. Well, uh, th- that, those sorts of uh, circumstances w- raise faith questions. So as I'm reading through the book, one of the things that's happening to the characters is they're really wrestling with their faith. How, how can a good and just God allow Soviet uh, Russia and, and, uh, and Hitler's Nazi party to just crush millions of people, innocent people? How, how does a just, loving God let people just be slaughtered because they're Jews? And they're begging for their life, and it doesn't matter. Evil men just machine gun them down over a mass pit. Why does God let um, those, those gross injustices, but also the, the, uh, the many injustices and cruelties that God's people experience all over the world still today? We have brothers and sisters who are experiencing the wicked acts of cruel and unjust men. And it's a challenge to our faith. The, the other problem, uh, trouble this man's experience is these enemies, they, they, they accuse him. Verse 10, my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and, see, pursue and seize him, for there is none to, to deliver him. Uh, the devil, of course, is the great accuser, and those who follow uh, the devil follow his lead. In the religious context of Israel, these sorts of accusations would be based upon some, the assumption of great sin. 
Uh, and so these, these people are assuming that God forsakes those who are guilty of great wrong, and that God has forsaken the author. If this is David, he, of course, is open to the charge, isn't he? He has committed a great sin. Uh, the great sin with Bathsheba and then putting to death her husband Uriah. And you know that the devil and David's own conscience, after he's finally convicted of his sins, for how many uh, years following that didn't David reflect upon that with deep regret and, with, uh, and battling with maybe the devil and his own conscience? We maybe know what that's like. It's hard to be a normal Christian and, and to have your, uh, your conscience condemn you. Because the fact is that the devil in our conscience can point to things that are absolutely true. We have sinned. We sinned grievously. There's a thousand reasons why God um, would justly remove his grace from us. Why God would just let us go. And it's an easy thing for for the devil in our conscience maybe to hold up those things. And I think those accusations uh, become maybe more real as you mature. As you become more spiritually mature and you realize what God deserves in a deeper way and you realize uh, what your sin is actually about and the wickedness and the vileness of it in a truer way. And the, the author here seems maybe to be experiencing that. I was just listening this past week to a, a sermon on Psalm 71 and uh, an older pastor, John Shearer, began his, his uh, he was talking to some other pastors and he says, just like you, I'm aware of the gap between what I have been over the past 40 years and what I could have been, what I should have been. I'm very conscious of of that. I'm painfully aware of the distance there is between reputation and reality. And I think anyone that's spiritually mature uh, completely understands that. Uh, people look at you and uh, they'll maybe notice certain things that are laudable. They'll maybe... uh, They'll praise you, pat you on the back. Um, but, but you know you. You know the, the, the sins that you've committed. You know the gap between what you should have been and what you have been. And, uh, and, and that, that's, a, that's a struggle for people, particularly, I think, as they move into older age. And then he mentions old age itself. Verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. It's verse 18. You see, the, um, the world values people that can contribute, don't they? The world values you if you're strong, if you have ability, if you have skill, if you're able to be productive. And uh, pe- God's people can easily think that's the way it is with God, that God loves it when we get things done, when we're productive. And we enjoy serving the Lord with our abilities and our skills, whether that's in providing for your family, raising your kids, um, nurturing friendships, having a, a, a good job where you're using your gifts, helping out at the church, whatever it might be. We enjoy being productive. But what about when you're not productive, when you're not capable, when old age has robbed you of your abilities, your skills? There's an old poem that speaks of this, in this way, two glad services are ours. Both the master loves to bless. First, we serve with all our powers. Then, with all our helplessness. Helplessness, friends, is, uh, is something that we were, we're all going to experience in one way or another. You experience it now if you're young, when you're sick. And you can't do the things that you normally could do. 
Elderly people experience it profoundly. When eyesight fails and hands tremble and strength is gone. And we, and we just need to recognize that helplessness is not, a, it's not an aberration. It's not a bug in the software of the Christian life. It's a design feature. We actually are all of us dependent completely all the time upon the Lord. Our strength is just what God has given to us. And, and there will be times he takes, it, he takes it away, either for a season or for good. And, and the writer here, as he's looking towards old age says, do not forsake me when my strength is spent. When I have nothing left to give, nothing left to offer, nothing but my need. It's a real, it's a real prayer. But it's a prayer offered in faith and even in confidence because as the, as the author is writing, he's writing with a wonderful looking back over his life and, and a looking up to the God of his salvation. So the perspective of this writer he starts by acknowledging that God is his refuge. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. And throughout the psalm, he weaves then the, both the character of God, that, he, that is his refuge, and the purposes of God. Those are the two things that stand out in the psalm. Those are the things that he's taking refuge in. What God is like and what God is purposed. So first, the righteous character of God, verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver and rescue me. The righteousness of God is His infinite, unremitting commitment to always and only do what is perfectly just and right. God does no wrong. Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right, what is just? Verse 19, the writer speaks of it again. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? This is an essential conviction for uh, those who hope to live in faith and even in praise in days of trouble and injustice and cruelty. Why does God allow such hard and horrible things to happen? We don't know. We don't know. And even the tragedies that happen in our our day-to-day life, things that are hard, things that are devastating. Why does God let loved ones die young? We don't know. The secret things belong to God. But we do know this, that God does no wrong. There's no unrighteousness in God. He doesn't, he doesn't do wrong. And, and, and this is where the, where the writer takes comfort, because not only does God do no wrong, God does all things. And so he says, be to me a rock of refuge, verse 3, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. I love that line. You have given the command to save me. So the writer, you see, realizes that his whole life has been and is and will be lived under the divine command of God that, that says save him. This, this is the beauty of the doctrine of election, which we find throughout Scripture. That, that our life doesn't happen to us. Our life is ordained by God, the God who foreknew us. So Paul in, in Romans 
chapter 8, 29 and 30, those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That there's an unbreakable chain of sovereign purpose, divine intent to save. And this is how we're to look at our life. The testimony of Scripture is that if you are a Christian, it's because God shows you in Christ. We read it earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. God shows you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined you to be adopted as sons according to the purpose of His will. And all of God's providential dealing with you and with me flows out of His electing, saving purpose and love. So all that God has elected, all that God has ordained must serve for me, for you, must serve the purpose of justification and glorification. Isn't that, isn't that good news? That, that there's nothing that God allows to, or ordains to happen in your life that does not serve that electing, saving, glorifying purpose. John Shear was talking about... Uh, a Puritan who, above his home, over the door, had inscribed these words, God's providence is my inheritance. I like that. God's providence is my inheritance. It's mine. It's for me. And this old man has a wonderful sense that his life then has been lived from the very beginning in the providential saving care of God. So look at verse 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Notice he doesn't say that he leaned on God from the day of his birth, but, but from before his birth. There was not a moment in his existence, even when he was in the womb, he was depending, leaning upon God. Not consciously, but truly. At the close of the uh, end of the service, we're going to be uh, singing a hymn that has this line, Unnumbered comforts to my soul your tender care bestowed. Before my infant heart conceived, from whom those comforts flowed. God was for you, brother and sister, even when you were in the womb. And God brought you out of the womb. You didn't just happen to be born. God knew the very day and ordained the day and the moment of your birth. And that providential care continues all through our life. As the man says, from my youth, O God, you have taught me. From my youth, you have taught me. Verse 15, he says his whole life has been experience of God's loving providential care. And he's going to talk about it. Uh, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all day, for their number is past my knowledge. And uh, in verses 15 and 16, he he, he seems at first in in verse 15 to be talking about the deeds of God's salvation um, that, that apply specifically to him, things that God has done to him. In verse 16, it seems the mighty deeds, the things that God has done for Israel as a whole. But here, he acknowledges that, that God has been constantly, daily, saving him. And he doesn't even know the full number of the ways that God has, has uh, accomplished and carried out this work. Who among us have any clue of all the times God has protected us from harm and evil, and, and who can tell the story of your life, all the, uh, the story that connects all the dots, all the facts, all the events, so that every single one of them fits into a, 
perfect peace where God is creating something beautiful and something for your everlasting salvation. I think in heaven we are going to be stunned to see the story of our life and to see all the unnumbered kindnesses and grace that, that God showed to us, his deeds of salvation in our life. And so this old man, as he looks at in his past, he has a keen sense that his life has not happened to him. It's been ordained for him. Even the hard things have been ordained. Notice verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. Who made him see calamities and troubles? His God made him see calamities and troubles. God did these things, and yet the God who brought the calamity also brought the deliverance, and that fuels his hope for the future. Verse 20b, from the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. You've done it in the past. God, you will do it again. This man is not a uh, he does not see that life has happened to him so that he's a victim. His life certainly has not happened by him so that he's a hero. His life has happened for him, and that makes him a worshiper. It makes him a worshiper. He's an aging man eager to tell the greatness and goodness of God. I have to tell you, I'm 58. I'm not the oldest person on staff. I won't say who that is. But, <clears throat> but um, you start thinking about what kind of old person do you want to be? What kind of old man, if God, if, God, if God lets me become an old man, what kind of old man do I want to be? Because, because I know old men who are grumpy and bitter, selfish, small. I don't want to be that kind of old man. I've seen old men who are cheerful, happy, grateful, giving, kind, godly. I want to be that guy. I wasn't thinking about that when I was 20 years old. I think about it now that I'm 58. Well, how do you get to be that guy? It all depends on how you look at life and how you look at God. You see, the, the reason this man is able to, to, to see life as a gift that God had, had given to him and crafted for him is because he's absolutely convinced that God is his God and that God is good and that God is righteous and God is, is sovereign and God's been at work. And that changes everything. That makes the response then necessarily be praised. Old men aren't uh, godly, happy, thankful old men don't just choose to be that way. They're that way because of what they see about their God and what they believe. And this man, believing that God is righteous, He's going to spend the rest of his life praising him. I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. And he, uh, Verse 18, even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those to come. I just love that this man, as he's thinking about old age, he's not thinking about retirement, he's thinking about a mission. He's got a calling to proclaim the, the power of God to the next generation. Isn't that wonderful? 
When we're old and feeble and we can't do things like we used to, we're able, uh, we used to do, we still have a mission and we still have a message. We have a calling to proclaim the power and the goodness and the righteousness, the faithfulness of the Lord our God to the next generation and the generation after them. To help our grandkids understand the secret of the world that in Jesus Christ, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And that life doesn't happen to you and life certainly is not created by you. But every day that God gives is a gift, a wonderful, precious gift, just like this day today. A beautiful gift we could never possibly deserve, couldn't possibly earn. And we got to worship freely. What a beautiful gift. And we got to see the sun. We got to see the colors. We got to be with friends and family. And we have a whole week ahead of us, just like this, and a a whole life ahead of us. And there will be heartaches. There will be... devastatingly hard times but we have reasons to praise even in the hard times because God is righteous and the God who knew us before we were born and who brought us uh, was caring for us even in our mother's womb the God who's ordained all of our days that God will never fail us because of Jesus Christ friends life is for us because God is for us And gratitude and worship are the signs of those who see it. But you need to be in Christ. You need to be in Christ. And if you're not tonight, I would just just invite you to bow your knee, confess your sin, recognize that um, the God that created you is the God you will answer to, and, and God has given you a free gift in Jesus that you might be rescued from your sin and experience His love and grace. And if you've done that, if you're a Christian, then let's live like Christians. Let's live by faith. Let's let's receive the precious gift that God gives to us in Jesus Christ of this life and life evermore and respond with gratitude and praise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you for this life. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of it. I thank you, Lord, for this day, for the sun that rose so wonderfully this morning for the dew that was on the grass. I thank you for the colors that we see all around us. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom to worship you today. It's a gift we don't deserve, and there's so many of our brothers and sisters who lack it today. But, Lord, I thank you that even when they cannot gather for worship, in their hearts they can offer up worship, and and you delight in it, and you commune with them. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that our life is a gift that we receive each day. Because if, if you are for us in Jesus Christ, oh Lord, then, then who can be against us? And, and I pray that we would then live with gratitude and thanksgiving. I pray, Lord, it would change our perspective. I pray it would take away our anxiety. I pray it would remove our fear, take away our bitterness, that we would be happy, holy people who delight in this good gift of our life as it is, knowing, Lord, that you are at work to give us everlasting life in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, then, that you would keep us praising you, telling the next generation of the goodness and the might of our saving God until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the word tonight, singing that song, When all thy mercies, O my God, let's stand together and sing.
you go into the week that God has ordained for you and gifted to you in Jesus Christ, go with his blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you all. Amen.